Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mind Body Greens Beauty Podcast, Clean Beauty School. I am your host and Mind Body Greens Beauty Editor, Alexandra Engler. On this podcast, we explore beauty through the lens of well-being. And on today's episode, I am having on a guest who I'm so excited to chat with. I have been devouring his TikToks. I think he has a such unique and insightful takes on the world of aesthetics and the world of plastics. And I cannot wait to hear more into his practice and his philosophy. And I just, I'm so excited to chat with him. So without further ado, Dr. Ben Tully, welcome. Thank you, Alexander. It's a pleasure. Well, the pleasure is all mine. And I, I would like the audience to get to know you a little bit better and just hear a little bit about your story and how you found yourself in, in medicine and specifically plastic surgery. You know, so what was that journey into, into plastics, into the aesthetics field? Well, I was one of the lucky ones in this world who I knew what I wanted to do from when I was about five to eight years old, like that range where I had a doctor who took some earwax out of my ear. And uh, I just always loved the feeling the pediatrician gave me. I was always, I always kind of felt safe and the smell of the office and all that kind of stuff. And I always thought to myself, I want to be that person who's, you know, helping others and making others feel comfortable. Uh, that was from childhood and science always fascinated me. Physiology always fascinated me. And that was another thing that I had to know. I was a very curious person. I had to know everything about everything. Uh, and that was one of the main things amongst the world where I looked at the stars and the sun and, you know, try to figure things out as a kid where I knew that I always had to know the science of it. So that really is what pushed me to go into medicine. And then in medicine, you've got your medicinal people and you have your surgical people. I'm not one who can just twiddle my thumbs and walk around and wait for something to happen. It's, you know, and I, we need them and it's an important job. It's just not the way I am. I'm somebody who has to like, see something broken. I want to fix it right away. I just want to put it back together. I've always been working with my hands, like since I was a kid. And I'm very technical and I just like doing things like that. And that's what drove me to surgery. And in surgery, the most delicate type of surgery that people see that you can't hide from anywhere is head and neck surgery. It's the one place, even brain surgery, it's hidden behind the skull. You know, So this is stuff where if you have cancers that you cut out and you do that kind of stuff, like everybody sees it. And uh, you have this kind of meter to work against where people can gauge you and tell you you're the best, you're not the best. And for me, that's the fun of it. So I was going to be a head and neck cancer surgeon. And at the, that's where I really started guiding my life. And I went to head and neck residency where you are in New York. So I was at Columbia and Cornell and I planned to do a head and neck cancer fellowship. Uh, but at some point I started crying every day and it's because other people were crying. I would tell someone they had cancer and I ran the clinic and they would cry. I would cry. It was like, and it was the first time in my life I felt any kind of like loss of energy and maybe like a little gentle depression or something. It was really strange for me. And I thought, you know, I can't keep living like this. And uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not so stressful for head and neck surgeons because, you know, they think to themselves, well, if I don't help somebody, they're going to die anyways. So really it's not as stressful as you'd think. But the act of telling people that it was just hard for me. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah, it was rough. So I, at that point, pivoted and I thought, you know what, I'll do the reconstruction for this stuff and that's good enough for me. And doing the reconstruction, I started hanging out with all the different plastic surgeons and fell in love with it more and more. And then I saw that I could do the tumors, just benign tumors on kids. And that's why I did a birthmark fellowship. So I did a birthmark fellowship for these big vascular tumors that grow in kids' faces and uh, I had the best of all worlds. I was going to be a reconstructive surgeon, cosmetic surgeon, pediatric surgeon. And that's like my dream. So that's what I did. I trained for it in New York, did two fellowships over there, and then 
came back to LA to start it all. And then my practice went straight cosmetic because that is what is demanded of you here. <laughs> sure. That, that is what LA is known for. I would love to know about your aesthetic philosophy and your approach to aesthetics because you do have such a thoughtful approach to this. I mean, your work is just really beautiful and it's just so natural looking. And I'm curious how you approach, approach your work. Well, the, the main thing is I live in reality. Like more than most people, I'm very grounded and severely grounded to the point where um, I've got an imagination. I've got a big imagination. I'm very creative. I just can't pull myself out of reality, though. So um, there's no situation where I would ever lie to myself. It doesn't help. I don't lie to anybody else. It doesn't help. Um, I don't deny anything. I look at everything. I criticize everything I do. Um, it's part of my culture. It's like being self-deprecating. You know, you just kind of everything you look at is bad. It's bad. You got to fix it. You got to make it better. You got to help. You got to do it. So that's my approach to things. And that's why um, I think I got guided towards doing things natural because I can't look at someone's face and it looks like a big, like nasty turd and look at it and say to myself, oh, you did a good job. Like, I can't do that. You know, most people don't have that eye and they can just tell themselves whatever. I can't do that. And um, that's what guided me more and more towards not just the natural, but fixing every little thing that I do wrong. Because if nobody ever complains ever in the world, it means either they're idiots or you're perfect. It's one or the other. Otherwise, let's say you're not perfect and they're not idiots. You're going to be in this realm of people complaining about things. And if you listen to them, you start to realize that you're not perfect and you have to fix something. And so I've dedicated my whole kind of career to just getting better at all those things. So I came in a bit more of a cowboy. I was a bit more cavalier when I started thinking like, oh my God, I'm God's gift to earth for like fillers or whatever I was doing at the time. And um, after a while, you start to see your cases and you look at it four years later, five years later and like, oh shit, like maybe I wasn't doing it the right way. And I'm on this constant kind of evolution to figure that out. And what it's led me to is just the most natural possible aesthetic you can get on everything, whether it's injectables or lasers or whatever it is, I live in reality and I look at it and I don't want to change people. I don't think I can do better than like the way they were born a lot of the time. So uh, there are things that I leave alone and I don't want to tamper with and like natural tissues are so healthy. Why would I want to mess with them? You know, so uh, for me, it has become this game of like, what can you touch? What don't you touch? Um, can you make it better than like, you know, you would say like God created or their parents created, but like, can you make it better than that or not? And if not, don't touch it, leave it alone. Do you need to change it? So that's been my philosophy and my approach to things. And, um, everything that I do is kind of based upon keeping the anatomy of the face normal. And I know the anatomy of the face now, because I didn't know it before eight, nine years ago. I knew it like textbook. I knew it reading things, teaching things, what people taught me, surgeries, whatever else, but I wasn't like so familiar with it that I could close my eyes and go through the maze, you know, 20 times in a row and end up at the same. Now I can. So it, it's changed to that point. I know the face so well inside and out that I know how to keep it the same. And that's, that's kind of the game for me now. When you were talking about, you know, knowing what to touch and knowing what to leave alone and understanding those dynamics, I, I'm curious about what that looks like in practice. Is that about understanding what, like, say somebody comes in and they are, I don't know, unhappy with like their chin or their jawline. It, how would you approach somebody and know what exactly needs to be tweaked and what to leave alone in, in 
you know, that hypothetical situation. Yeah. So like a chin and jawline, that's a no brainer. Those are easy things. But let's say someone, someone comes in and says, full face. And they say, well, I also would love brighter eyebrows and some dimples or something. So I'm looking at all this stuff, like let's say dogs. I don't know if you like dogs, but there's like really like, you know, pretty predictable dogs like German Shepherds and uh, Retrievers, Golden and Labrador Retrievers. They're pretty predictable. So you kind of look at it and say, well, I know if I do this, this is going to happen. My risk is going to be low. I know I can make it better. I see exactly what's happening. I'm a mechanic. I move it. Now there's your chihuahuas and your Rottweilers and your pitbulls, and you're like, okay, well, these are slightly temperamental and um, not so predictable all the time. But you know, I love them though, and they're fantastic. Um, let me go put my face next to this Rottweiler and like kiss it a couple times and see what happens. And the Rottweiler bites your face. So this is the same as the world of surgery. You know, like how many people do I know who are like, the dog was so nice, and I just put my head up next to this chihuahua and he bit my lip off. Like I hear this all the time and this is what happens in surgery. They're like, well, it goes right most of the time. And then um, I went and changed it and put a dimple in this person that's you know not supposed to be there. And well, the dimple bit me in my ass. So um, my approach has been to maximize what I can do on the predictable ones. So stay on the side of the soft and gentle ones and the predictable stuff maximize there. And I don't even bother with the things that aren't gonna be predictable and aren't gonna go in my favor every single time. And so my success rate goes up because I don't fail and I don't get bitten in the face and have to sew my lip up and have to backtrack and do all these kind of stuff. Uh, doing that has made my reputation better, <laughs> coincidentally, because there's there aren't people walking around saying, you know, I messed them up or, or whatever else. But it also makes me a better surgeon because I know where to focus my energy. Sure. What do you think the... Uh plastic surgery industry or the world of plastics is getting wrong right now? Like, what are the pain points that you are seeing in the industry? Well, almost everything. So you, know, you, you got to look at the reputation of plastic surgery and you start from there. So if I were to ask you, what's the reputation of plastic surgery, good or bad? Just a, you know, what would you say? Not, it's not great, I would say. No, yeah, not stellar. And if it's not stellar, there's a reason for that. It's not because people are stupid. It's because people see things and they're scared of things. And they're scared of things because bad things have been happening. So when you have that reputation, you got to look around and think, well, you know, not that plastic surgeons are geniuses and they're doing everything right. It's that plastic surgeons, it's either that or plastic surgeons are morons, they're doing everything wrong. So which one's more correct is the moron. It's like, so that's really how you have to look at surgery. So in the world of plastic surgery, what's going wrong? Mostly it's, doctors not being tied to reality. They're a little dysmorphic and um, they could have dysmorphic tendencies or dysmorphic full-on reality. Like they could just be really dysmorphic and they, they don't see things that other people see, which is like a reverse dysmorphia, or they see things that other people aren't seeing or, or they, um, they themselves want to change things in a weird way that nobody else would change. And this is uh, a substantial amount of doctors and some would call it dysmorphia. Some would just call it plain old bad taste. And, um, Bad taste is very prevalent in this world. You know, you can walk down the street and how many people do you look at their clothes and say, wow, love what that person's wearing. How many times do you drive and you're like, wow, that's a genius driver versus the 95% of the time where you're like, oh my God, what is this person thinking? Like move, what are you doing? So plastic surgery is the same. It doesn't follow a different set of rules. It's the same. And they're just not tasteful people in general. They like to think of themselves as artists. We all do. We all like to think. I like to think I'm smart. I like to think I'm like, everyone likes me, you know, 
I like to think of it that way, but maybe other people don't see it that way. And plastic surgery, unfortunately, is filled more with this whole type of personality, which is megalomania, megalomaniacs, and uh, people who are obsessed with themselves and beauty and slightly narcissistic. And uh, so that's the main thing is that they don't really see or have good taste to determine, first of all, what to do. Then they don't have the training because it's really hard to get the right training if the whole world is made up of those people and you have to go find the diamond in the rough to really give you the best training. So you have to be very lucky to have good taste, be born with some kind of skill set, born with it, then have the ability to evolve that skill set, then on top of that, see things, then on top of that, criticize yourself, and then on top of that, also have trained with the best people coincidentally. So it's a tough field to be good in. So that's why there are some things wrong. I mean, that was a pretty long checklist of things you need to go through <laughs> uh, until, you know, you're considered uh, to be top level. So I can imagine there's perhaps a lot of people out there that haven't gone through such rigor. Yeah. And then missing things. That's usually what happens. And then people start to look weird. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is certainly a lot of that in in the media now. You know, you are seeing a lot of people who don't have, who have bad work you know, and you see a lot of overfilling or you see a lot of aesthetics that look a little foreign. It's kind of that Instagram face, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's interesting because you do, on the one hand, you do see this work that I think a lot of us would classify as not tasteful and perhaps doesn't look natural. But then you also have a lot of celebrities or high profile people, or even just regular people who do get work done, and it is good work, but it's not noticeable, and then they don't talk about it. And so I do think there's this interesting, like situation where the good work isn't being discussed. And so you're right. And so it's like everybody just associates plastic surgery with the bad work, because it's obvious, you're in it so much more than I am. Do you do you think the conversation is opening up to where people are feel more comfortable to talk about the work that they've had? Do you still feel like there's shame around it? I mean, yeah, I'm just curious. Well, people are definitely talking about it more um, that I've seen for in the U.S. more than other countries. Uh, but U.S. is kind of also ahead in the timeline of doing plastic surgery, so they've had more time to kind of get it into culture and get used to it and not have it be, you know, something that people are totally against. So you do see it more in the US and more so in the past several years. And amongst celebrities specifically, you're not seeing it publicly, but privately they are talking about it more, a lot more. And that's why you're not seeing as many horrendous things happen to people. You know, the things that happened to Madonna there there a while ago. The things that happened to Simon Cowell, those things can happen, unfortunately, still. But everybody else has been saved. So there are all these other people who you don't see who I know would have gone to somebody who sucked and then they kind of like heard my name or my friend's name or my, you know, my other friend's name in New York or wherever. And they, they go to those people and they come out fantastic. So amongst celebrities, they are talking about it a lot. Now they're all sharing it with each other. Uh, they're not as shy as they used to be about it. And it really just starts from one person telling another, telling another. And then once they, it makes a little culture out of it where they're not ashamed to talk about it and it's fun for them. And then, Publicly, and I've mentioned this before, publicly, you know, you don't know if them talking about it to the world is a service or a disservice. It could have both reactions. It could be where it, you know, gives people kind of a, a little dysmorphia about being uh, trying to look perfect because they see that this actor did it or singer did it. And they're like, I can do it too. And they go chase something they shouldn't chase. Or it could be the opposite where they lie about it and then 
they think, oh my God, everyone's perfect but me and look at that person. And they went and had a little help and she, you know, they think that they're just naturally ugly because everyone else naturally is good. So it goes both ways. You know, there's no way to, you know, stop people from feeling bad in general. But I personally don't feel anybody needs to publicly talk about it. You know, it's not a topic, even if they're not embarrassed about it. It's like, it's just not a topic you want your life to be about. You know, you want to get it done, move on. Who gives a shit? And if somebody asks you, you're like, okay, yeah, I did it. Great. But it's not something you bring up in conversations. I think it's fun when people do because this is my world. You know, I like talking about it and I like when people share it and I like when people feel comfortable with what I do. And I like when people trust me. And the more people talk about it amongst each other, the more they trust me because then they know, well, a thousand other people went through this. A thousand other people were stressed and a thousand other people are totally fine. So I'm going to be fine too. Yeah. I think what you were talking about with celebrities specifically is really interesting and how, you know, there's good sides and bad sides. It's, you know, you don't want to overshare too much because you don't want to create a culture around people feeling that they need to do this stuff. But on the same hand, you know, it is good to talk about what people have done. And I, I struggle with how, how I think the beauty industry should approach this sort of conversation because, you know, we want to talk about this stuff openly and we want to provide people with the information, but we also don't want to make them feel like they have to do something if they've never thought of it before, if they've never had a problem with it before. So it's, it, it's a tough balance. And it's certainly something that I, you know, I, I certainly think about quite a bit as we have these sorts of conversations. I want to pivot the discussion a little bit to collagen. You have some really interesting TikToks that I completely found myself obsessed with and talking about collagen production and fillers and scar tissue. I had never seen anyone discuss it like this before. I had never heard this opinion. I had never heard that this is what's happening with scar tissue. Just to, to catch everybody up on this discussion, let's let's lay the groundwork here a little bit so people know what we're talking about. I'm referencing how you're talking about with specific fillers, how they can trigger a wound response, which will encourage collagen production, but it's a scar tissue collagen production, right? I would love to have you explain what exactly is happening in these scenarios and why it's not perhaps the collagen that you would want. I mean, that's the best way to put it is maybe it's not the collagen you would want sometimes. So the things that we're talking about are what they call biostimulators and biostimulators. Um, it's like a, it's a euphemism. Okay. So a, a biostimulator is like calling a rapist, like a, a someone who's just very hypersexual, you know? Uh, and it's just like a nice way of saying it, I guess. <laughs> but, um, uh, it's it's really not precise. It's not a precise way to describe it. So biostimulators uh, in this world, we have two main ones. The one is polyelectric acid (PLLA), which is Sculptra, which would be the main brand for that. And then the other one is uh, calcium hydroxyapatite, which was never intended to be a biostimulator. It's just people noticed that scar tissue would form, and they thought, "Well, biostimulation." So. That's calcium hydroxyapatite is a brand name Radius. So they kind of have the market on that. And then Sculptra is the market on PLLA, not PLLA microspheres, PLLA granules powder. So these products you inject into the face, let's say Sculptra, um, it's a suture material that's ground down and your body has to eat up the suture material. So what they do is you mix it up in a, some water into a solution and you inject it into the face and your body will start to eat it up. And as it eats it up, it starts an inflammatory reaction that builds up what we call granulation tissue or granulomas, little baby granulomas. So granuloma is a granulation tissue that grows. That's the oma, granuloma. And this process is called fibroplasia. So it just means that your fibroblasts come in to heal the area and to eat things up. And then they deposit collagen and other 
fascial constituents, hyaluronic acid, water, whatever else comes in it. And they look kind of like little fat beads that form. And that's why it's really good for somebody who has what we call HIV lipodystrophy or somebody who has like fat loss or really gaunt and you want them to gain weight in the face. This is how to gain weight by replacing fat cells. And that is a very scientific and accurate and specific way to put it that would make every person who is getting an injected know exactly what you're doing and every doctor know exactly what it does. Okay, that's exactly what it is. How now? I'm the guy from the company. Okay, my name is Alexander, not an Alexandra. And I come up and I'm like, hey, I've got this biostimulator. You inject it under the skin and it's going to stimulate your skin to reform collagen and it's going to make your skin healthier and it's going to thicken the skin. And then uh, they're like, and if you don't believe me, here's a histologic study. And they show you a histologic study and you, you know, you like barely graduated fifth grade here. And you're looking at this and you're like, wow, it's pink. And you're like, great. You know, it's like someone saying, oh my God, I saw Bigfoot. And you're like, no way. And they show you just like a picture of just like a big foot. And then you don't see the rest of the body, right? And you don't, you don't know what that was. It wasn't, you know, a Sasquatch or whatever it was. So either way, this is what happens. They show them these things and then now they think it's science. So now they're like, oh my God, I saw collagen that was deposited under the dermis. And that translates to me as the dermal collagen that was lost over time has now been restored because it's just a big stretch of the amount, but that's what they see, big, big stretch. So they're making a lot of leaps here with the science. A lot of leaps, big leaps. Now, if you were to look at the collagen or rays, you would notice that it's not organized in the same way. Collagen is a bunch of fibrils that cross-link together, and that's what you need vitamin C for to help cross-link them. And there are lots of types of collagen. We talk about five, but there are 28 to 30. Okay, there's lots of kinds of collagen. Why? Because it's little protein fibers that attach in different ways. And so there's a lot of types of collagen because they can go in any type of array. So one type is like a keloid. That's not good. One type is like hypertrophic scars. That's not good. One of them is like the thick kind of that you get under the skin when you hit yourself somewhere. Well, that's not good. You know, so those are all collagen types. What you get when you incite a fibroplastic response is a mix. You get one, you get three. You get those ones kind of combined in a high amount that resembles more granulation tissue than anything. But it is not the type one, two, three, four, five that you would see in different parts of your dermis, subdermis, in the dermis itself, completely different. So that's your world of biostimulators. Beautiful, fantastic to use if you know how to use it, but everybody keeps describing it wrong. And so they're using it wrong. Okay. Like it's great to have a glass and some water, but like, don't drink out the wrong side. It's just simple. Like it's going to pour everywhere. So it's better if someone just tells you one time here, be more precise about it. This is how it goes. Now you have the calcium hydroxyapatite, and this is worse than that because it's a bony mineral and a bony mineral is much more, it has the word calcium in it. And so you've ever heard of the word calcification or calcifying? It's generally not a good thing. No, definitely not. Yeah, human tissue is soft and everything functions and your organs, they don't like calcium deposits and calcification. The only place where you really want calcium is where? Teeth, bones. You know this from like growing up, right? Sure, yes. <laughs> so it's a bony mineral. Why would you want it in your soft tissues? Why would you want to calcify your soft tissues? Because some rep named Alexander II walks in and says, hey, I've got a biostimulator here. You can just inject it and it's going to form more collagen. And they're correct but it's a bit misleading.
for the same reasons that we just told you, with the additional fact that this actually forms crystals, which is not what you want in this beautiful, soft face of yours. Sure. Would you be able to inject that closer to the bone? I'm just curious. And like, is that the point of it? Or that should be the point of it. Yes. So you you are leaps and bounds ahead of most practitioners. So that is the correct answer. It can be and should be injected really only on bone and nowhere else, no matter what people think. Now, they have strong beliefs and they will say, no, I know it works because I injected it and I saw that it worked. And what they're noticing is that they did get an improvement in the skin. They're completely ignoring the irreversible side effects that they had on like 1% or 10% of people, depending on their practice, irreversible. Um, and saying, well, I did see improvements. And so they take that to mean that the they, they injected something and it worked. So what they believe must be true, that it's forming dermal collagen. But you can get improvements more ways than one. If you volumize under the skin, it's going to look better. It'll stiffen. It'll scar. It'll always look better. So they're taking, they're again, misinterpreting their own results and thinking it to mean that their theory was correct, which is obviously not true because I'm a surgeon and I go in there and I can cut open the skin and show it to them and be like, your theory is stupid. It doesn't, you know, but they don't ever see underneath. What do they have is imagination. And occasionally they have ultrasound. That's about it. That is so fascinating. When I when I first saw you talk about this, it completely blew my mind because no one is talking about, you know, these these injectables in this sort of way. No one's really talking about collagen in this sort of way. And I think what you're explaining, the core of it has ramifications for other treatments too, right? Like radiofrequency or these sort of things that trigger a, a wound response. Like, do you want to be triggering those wound responses with these treatments? Yes, you do for those, but you, you're way, you're way smarter than you even know. <laughs> what you're saying is exactly what I tell people is, uh, yes, you want to trigger a wound response that is controlled in these situations, but not so much in others. Uh, so there are certain ones where it is the desired outcome and there's other ones where it is not desired because it's going to cause thickening and chlorosing of the skin and things like that. So so you're, you're, you're very on point with this stuff is that, yes, you do want a wound response and that's how you get remodeling. And you're also on point because that's why people get confused is because they think that all wound responses are good and that all wound responses are great and that the more wound response you get is even better. So that is what leads people trouble, not differentiated. They're in grade one. They just learned wound response and they stopped. You're right now at like getting a PhD. You're way above that. And you realize that there is a big difference in the wound response. And is it going to be denaturation a little bit, denaturation a lot, overheating, thermal relaxation times? Does the skin recover? Do you have columns of skin that are unhurt? There's all these other variables that they don't really look at or understand. So that leads people to just say, okay, well, a wound response on the skin and causing this fibroplastic response is great. Let me do more of it because more is automatically better, which is not true. So great is great. Appropriate is appropriate. More is not necessarily better. Less is not necessarily better. It's just good is good. And all these treatments have sweet spots. And so it's more finding kind of sweet spot rather than just throwing on more thinking it's going to do better. So there's a big difference. Yeah. And I also think that, a big problem that we have is 
these technologies and these innovations in the world of aesthetics, they sound so exciting. And especially when you're on social media and, you know, you see people talking about these various treatments or, you know, the surgeries or the tweakments that they've gotten done and people, they go, oh, I want that, but it's maybe not what's best for their specific needs. And so, you know, people aren't intelligent about what they, what they're asking for, or they're not going to the right people who are leading them in the direction of saying, oh, I know you want X, Y, Z, you're better suited for this whole other thing, right? Yeah. And that's when you go to that person and they say that, you know, you went to the right place because they, they're aware of everything. Um, and it's a level of awareness that some people don't have. So, uh, you know, somebody will go to uh, one doctor and say like, what should I do about my mouth? And the doctor has five tools in their tool set and has only seen five tools in their life. That's all they know. They're like, well, I think you need a hammer and a nail and let me get this screwdriver for you. And then you're definitely gonna do this, this screwdriver with a screw. You're gonna love those things, fantastic. Versus somebody who has, let's say five tools, but also, just loves to hang out all the other people's tool sheds. And they're like, holy shit, this guy's got these tools, that guy's got those tools. And then you go to them and they you come in for your lip and they're like, your problem is not your lip, your lip is perfect. But I hung out with some dentists and these dentists told me that if you do this with your teeth and your gums, that's what's gonna make your smile look better. So, and I know that cause I saw it and they showed it to me. So go talk to them and go ask them, but I'm not the one who's gonna be able to help you out with that. So it is uncommon, unfortunately, that you have people who listen to everybody outside of their narrow fields because most of people can only handle what they see. Like they can only handle what's in front of them and it's already a lot for them. So for them to go kind of expand to other fields is already like drawing them away from trying to get good at one thing. So I don't blame those people for it, but yeah, whenever you do hear someone say that, you know, you went to like someone well-rounded. Um, I don't, I know I don't have a ton of time with you, but I do want to ask you, you know, how does lifestyle play a role in your practice? Like, are you encouraging your patients to follow specific nutrition principles? Are you talking to them about like sleep and stress? Like, I'm just curious about how the modern world of aesthetics is incorporating lifestyle medicine. The inside and out, my practice is a little different. Uh, inside my practice, when I'm seeing people just for straight up consultations, the focus is either on me doing surgery or, hey, go fix your skin. Like, you got to go fix your skin however you want to do it with whatever dermatologist or Jenner tailor that we have here. But go fix your skin because that's the biggest organ on your whole body and your whole face. And no matter what I do, you're going to have this thing covering it. So go fix that. So from that's my conversation. Now, outside of my office, because I don't do body stuff. So the, the lifestyle and this and that has limited kind of effect on me unless I think there's some anxiety to deal with or smoking or something specific. Outside the office is different. I have a whole center I'm dedicating to life and energy, which is called Etern. And that's around the corner from here. And uh, it's, it's an energy center where we focus on daytime running energy, your sexual energy, and then your performance energy for like exercise. So these three things, they kind of intertwine. If you look at one of those little charts and uh, they, they cross over a lot. And that's a big focus of mine is to help people boost those things to just live a better life period and do so naturally. So we pull them off of caffeine. We pull them off of uh, hormones. Everyone's taking too many hormones. It's like, you don't know what they're going to do long-term. So that's, that's my focus outside. Uh, but definitely if I see somebody and something's off with them, I do refer them for whatever issue they need. But I don't sit there and talk to them fully about lifestyle stuff myself unless I see them going down a bad path. And then I do. And then I scare the shit out of them because I don't want them to leave and forget what I said. So I try to leave some kind of impact. 
That energy center sounds fascinating. I recently gave up coffee, so that really piqued my interest that you even said that. It has been a struggle, but I'm committing to it. Uh, I'll keep you informed on how it goes. You can give me some tips, maybe. Um. <laughs> you can have one cup of coffee a day and it's fine, other than like, you know, breath not smelling great. And even two is okay, but most people get in this little cyclical type of drinking where they're drinking like 10. And uh, at that point, it's not helping you at all. It's only hurting you. It's giving you cycles, ups and downs, ups and downs, and it's a bit of an addiction at that point. So uh, it makes you more tired, actually, without you realizing it. And that's the whole point in the first place is for it to you know, get you. It's like c- cigarettes. People are like, oh, it relaxes me when I smoke a cigarette. I'm like, no, you're anxious when you don't smoke a cigarette. I'm like, you're only getting relaxed because you got rid of your anxiety from your addiction. You need to calm down. Yeah. No, that that is fascinating. And then I I think there's an interesting connection there between your aesthetic work and the energy work, because you're working on people, you're helping them look their best. I think naturally people also want to feel their best once they start going down that aesthetic path, right? You know, it's like these things go hand in hand all the time. And if they're feeling better, they're less of a pain in the ass to me because they don't sit there all day nitpicking about things that don't make a difference in the world because they're living their lives energetically and happy. So I do get another benefit from that. You have it all figured out. I'm so impressed. (laughs) Coincidental benefits. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, this was such a fascinating talk. I had so much fun chatting with you. Your insights are not only are they very funny and entertaining, but they're brilliant. So thank you. (laughs) Just don't fact fact, fact check anything I say. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining me today. Of course. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. For more beauty content from the team at MindBuddyGreen, you can always read along with our content at mindbuddygreen.com, follow us on social media, and of course, tune into next week's episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you ever want to reach out with questions or insights or thoughts, you can find me on Instagram at Alex underscore Blair underscore. Thanks so much for your time.